Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We return this morning to muse upon this wonderful book, and we enter the most practical section of the book. Um, In fact, it gets a lot more practical after this. Last week, I gave you a brief outline of the book, at least of this chapter, of the section, verse 13 through to 18, and it was as follows. Verse 13 deals with the evidence of wisdom. Verse 14 to 16 deals with the signs of false wisdom. And then verse 17 to 18 deals with the effects of true wisdom. This morning, we'll give particular attention to verse 13. And so I will just look at the evidence of wisdom. We will see the demonstration or the fruit of what wisdom looks like. We will be confronted by faith that shows itself up in works and is seen in how one behaves or treats people. In the previous context, James highlighted the importance of controlling the tongue, and we spend a lot of time on that section. Now we swivel to the attention to wisdom, and it may seem like James is talking about a brand new topic unrelated to the tongue, but you will see later on that it does actually connect. Many times in Bible study, I have to hold back from running ahead of myself, because inevitably there's somebody that asks questions that goes too far ahead. But somebody asked, and rightly so, how should we then control our tongue? If James writes about how negatively the tongue is being used, how, we, how it's a fire and how it's a, an evil thing that just damages people, how then should the tongue be used? James, in the section, verse 13 through to 18, provides an indirect, direct answer to that question. So he's not specifically going to tell you, though, this is how you should use the tongue, but he indirectly tells you this is how the tongue should be used. He makes a distinction between wisdom that is demonic and wisdom that is divine. He calls the one wisdom from below and the one wisdom from above. When you understand these two different things, you would want to be in the wisdom that is divine. Wisdom that comes from God, because if you have that, it will affect not only how you live, but how you speak with people. There are two areas that James highlights, and I will point that out to you when we get to the middle of verse 13. As a way of introduction, I just want to bring to your reminder that James, in the beginning of this book, speaks about how we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The Word of God should not only reside on the external of our being or just in the mind of the hearer, but it should have hands and feet. The Word of God should impact how we live, how we respond to Him. James writes about those who looks into the law of liberty and walks away as if it has no bearing upon his life. That person has no real relationship with the Word of God 
Or I should say, he has a superficial relationship with the word of God because the word does not impact his life. That is not the kind of Christian James is after. As a result, at the end of chapter 1, James says that person's religion, his acts of worship is worthless. means nothing. Why? Because he cannot control his tongue. The word of God in that case has no impact upon his heart, which means no impact upon the tongue. When we come to James chapter 3, he doesn't mention the word, but it is lying in the background. He returns to this discussion of the tongue. James demonstrates that it is important for us to have a mastery over the tongue. It is important for the tongue to have good fruits. Why? Because if there's goodness in the heart, what will be evident on the tongue? Goodness. James now toggles to this discussion of wisdom. And he demonstrates that wisdom must be visible in one's conduct and in one's speech. Faith does not choose the area where it wants to be faithful. Faith does not compartmentalize life, nor does wisdom. James, therefore, expects a holistic change in the people of God. When you have faith, it must be demonstrated in all of your life. If you have wisdom, it must be seen in all of your life. James expects both conduct and conversation to come into alignment with God's word and will. Now, if you look in the beginning of chapter 4, James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What is he talking about there? Speaking. So, In the beginning of chapter 4, you have James dealing with the tongue. In the middle of chapter 3, you have James speaking with the tongue. And right in the middle, you have what? Wisdom. Why does James speak about wisdom? Well, in chapter 4, James points out that the real problem is not the quarreling. The real problem is the heart. That there is an inward fighting, an unsatisfied desire in our heart. And so we blurt it out. We fight with people who don't meet our desire or help us be satisfied in life. The same thing goes for the problem of the tongue in the earlier section of chapter 3. Why do we burn people down? Why is our tongue a fire and why does it cause so much damage? The exact same reason was given because we have an internal problem. On both, in both cases, James demonstrates the corruption of the heart is manifested on the tongue. So where does wisdom come in? Right between these two sections on the discussion of the tongue, James puts a balance beam. And he says, wisdom is the answer. <coughs> Sorry. Now at this stage... Wisdom provides that balance that is necessary for us not to burn people down with our tongues and not to cause fights. And I will try to illustrate that as we go along. While this is the crucial thematic convergence of this entire book, 
all the themes or most of the themes are brought together in verse 13 through to verse 18. James, however, shows the importance of wisdom in how we act and how we speak. Those two things will come up quite often. So verse 13 provides two qualities that is essential for those who have wisdom and understanding, those who are wise and understanding. These two will be seen in how we conduct ourselves and how meekness shows itself up in conversation. Wisdom is not wisdom if it does not have a holistic effect upon the person. James provides a clear expression of what wisdom will look like when it is applied in the life of God's people. Now, interestingly, teachers... Prophets and priests were supposed to be filled with wisdom. They were men who were engaged with the word of God. And as a net result of that, they had to be filled with wisdom and understanding. They had to be able to provide guidance to God's people. In the context of chapter 3, James speaks about those who desire to be teachers. Look at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brother. So the, the major context is what? Becoming a teacher, desiring to become a teacher. And he writes to those men in the synagogue who desire to, to ascend to the position of teaching. And he says, don't. And in response to their desire, James writes in the beginning of verse 13, who is wise and understanding? Well, you would expect the teacher to be wise and understanding. You would expect those who open the word of God and provide counsel to the people of God to be wise and understanding. But that is not always the case, right? Even today, it was true back then. But even today, just because you've got some people in the pulpit of God doesn't mean they are wise and understanding. And so James provides a caution for those who open their mouths and provide wisdom to God's people. In order for you to do that, You need to have quality. You need to have a quality of life that far exceeds anything and anyone in life. Those who are wise and understanding, they (coughs) are wise. The importance of these two words, wise and understanding, is written against the backdrop of the Jewish wisdom literature, which we spent time last week looking at, the Jewish wisdom literature understanding. To be wise and understanding is to know the word of God, to live in accordance with the will of God, and understand the way of God. You live with all of that knowledge in your mind and in your heart, and it directs your path. God's people need to understand who he is in order for them to live for him. That is behind these words, wise and understanding. So James (coughs) provides this anchor in their minds. You know what it means, not us as Gentiles per se, but as Jews. And so he says, who is wise and understanding? By that phrase alone, they immediately connect to wisdom literature. And they know exactly what he means. So all those who desire to be teachers, and the implication is for all God's people here as well, but in the context of James chapter 3, all those who desire to be teachers, he says, who among you is wise and understanding? Who of you really desire to be teachers? He's getting back to the beginning of this chapter. 
Do you really possess wisdom? Are you really equipped for the task of teaching? This is no different to the expectation of those who are wise and understanding in Old Testament literature, especially wisdom literature. The character of the one who is wise is that he is a godly person. Do you read the book of Proverbs? He's not a fool. He doesn't follow the, the, the woman on the corner. He doesn't look in the wrong direction. He doesn't do the things that dishonor God, but he follows righteous, a righteous path. Wisdom is not some theoretical, airy-fairy possession. It's not something that you claim you have, but has no bearing upon your life. Wisdom is both knowledge and understanding of God's will, God's way, and God's desire or wants for our life. Wisdom is possessing the knowledge of what God desires of us, and that breaks through our human inability and provides a path or a harvest of righteousness that we can walk in. Without God's aid and help in providing wisdom, we will never be able to live wise lives. That is why James says in chapter 1, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, what should you do? Ask God. So what James is after is that if we have trouble with our tongues, and we do, then there is something, there is a quality that's lacking in our hearts. There is a quality that is missing in how we approach life, and it is through biblical wisdom. Wisdom is walking with God and responding to life with God on our minds. Make sense? It is walking with God and knowing what God desires, and in responding to life as we have God risen and present in our minds. Without wisdom... We are merely doing what we naturally do as, we, uh, as people, not women, <laughs> as people. Sorry, that, that nearly slipped out. We lean on our own understanding. That is anti-wisdom. That is living a life based on your perception of what God desires. That is living a life based on your understanding of what would be pleasing to yourself. That is leaning upon that which God does not want you to lean upon. True wisdom relates specifically to the knowledge and understanding of God and impacts every sphere, avenue, corridor, pathway, classroom of your life. Knowledge and understanding has bearing upon our decisions, our conversation, and our conduct. Now, when it comes to wisdom... We generally think in terms of choosing a wife, buying a car, <clears throat> and what game to buy. <clears throat> now, I suppose wisdom could apply and should probably apply to those things. But those are, I would say, common sense things. And if you read the book of Wisdom, and he speaks about the woman, he says that a fool... A, 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 an unwise woman, a foolish woman, she's loud. She, she, she talks about herself and um, displays herself and wants you to know that she is there 
common sense to the young men would be, uh-uh, walk away. Doesn't matter how she looks, walk away. But the reason we struggle with decisions like that is because we don't have resident, we don't have the, the stream of God's wisdom in the scriptures running through our hearts, running through our minds. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? Light unto my... What does that mean? Light unto my path. What does it mean that it provides light and a lamp? It gives direction. It tells you where to walk because outside of that it is what? Darkness. So the word of God is that which provides the direction, the light that you need to live in a way that would please God. Wisdom is not a mere profession. You don't just say, I have wisdom and expect it to be there. Wisdom is understanding God's word and living in the light of that reality. Our natural tendency is to focus on the practical. And there is a practical element in it. But James looks more of a, at a holistic element that relates to wisdom. And we will see that in a moment's time. Now I say there are two elements or two essentials that James highlights with regards to wisdom. Number one, wisdom must demonstrate itself by means of godliness. And secondly, wisdom must demonstrate itself through gentleness. Those are the two points, and I'll prove it to you in this text. Two Gs that should make sense. Now, I originally wrote in my notes, goodliness, and that word will come up later on. And I know that you're thinking I'm making it up. I am not making it up. But remember that word. Either goodliness or good um, and gentleness. Very easy to see that in the text. Look at verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see those two little prepositions? By and in. That tells us how wisdom needs to show itself by this and through that. Now, your translation will probably say by and in, and that's okay. I'll explain uh, the reason why I say through later. But that is not the main thrust of this verse. The main point of this verse is by his good conduct, let him show his works. The main part of this word of this verse is let him show his works. The other two, by this and in that, are merely qualifying how we need to show our good works. So now before I get to those two elements, I know I haven't started the sermon yet. Before I get to those two elements, let me first deal with this main idea. Let him show his works. This verb, let him show, it, it kind of sounds uh, passive. It kind of sounds like it's something that is uh, optional. Well, no. And unfortunately, the way that this is translated, and it has to be translated this way because there's just no other way to translate it, gives that idea that it's an optional reality for us. In fact, the weight of this command, and it is an imperative, is this. He must show his works. 
That is the, the sense that lies behind this verb or this command. So, how do we show our works? Well, James provides these two qualities. By his good works and in the meekness of wisdom. Now, James strategically places these words, let him show his works, right up in the beginning of the verse. Now, it's not in the beginning of the verse in our translation, but that's okay. It still makes sense. By his good conduct, let him show his works. The command is, let him show his works. This is the heart of the sentence. This is what James is after. It's a demonstration of Faith. It is a demonstration of wisdom. Now, remember he's answering this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who of you say that you qualify for the task of teaching? Who of you say that you possess wisdom? Well, it is this guy. Let him show his works. The person who says that he is wise must show his works. This verb carries the idea that there is no option in it. Do this now. Don't delay. Prove it now. Bring it to light. Make sure that you are displaying your works. If you are wise and understanding, then you must have works to demonstrate that you are. This is not a mere state. It is an activity. Being wise and understanding is not a state. It's seen in life. See, true wisdom is based on knowledge. But it is more than just knowledge. It is the ability to condense the knowledge of the Holy One into a life that is pleasing to the Holy One because of what you understand about the Holy One. And therefore you live in constant submission to the Holy Spirit applying His truth to your life. Does that make sense? That is what James is after. This is a personal, ethical element called for in this verse. And we will see in a moment how that works its way out. Now there is something that James does here which is often missed just by the plain reading of the text. For those of you who have been with me for a from the beginning of, of James, you should be able to pick this up. Listen to these words and think about where you've heard it before. Let him show his works. Why does that sound familiar? Where did you hear that before? Chapter 2, right? Look at chapter 2 in verse 18. Now the discussion here, and it's uh, the, the way that the um, quotation marks work in our translations kind of give a uh, uh, an awfully um, misleading um, perspective. But someone will say, so James is saying, someone will say, and this is what the someone says, you have faith. So quotation marks, you have faith in quotation marks. So he's claiming to James that you are the one who has faith, and now this person speaks again, I have works. So you, James, you're the one who has faith, but I am the one who has works. Who is he speaking about? Jews, right? Because chapter 2 
verse 2 tells us that this is in a synagogue context. And this precedes the presence or the inclusion of the Gentiles into the, the church. So this is purely a Jewish statement. So the unbelieving Jews are saying to James, no, you're the one who says faith alone. I'm the one who believes in works. Because James is making the claim, how do you demonstrate your faith um, by means of your works? And now notice what James says after that. Show me your faith, your faith, the one that says I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. What well, you can't. Because your faith is your works. You base the fact that you know God on the ceremonial system of the law. And he says you don't have any faith. If that's all that you have. In fact, notice what he says in verse 9. You believe in God? Is that all that is required? Well, good for you. But guess what? The demons believe also. But they respond. They shudder. And what do you have? The sacrifices? Is that all you have? It is not accidental that James adds these words in at this section. This is called an intertextual um, reference. James is quoting himself without quoting himself. He's saying, think back to what I spoke about with regards to showing works. What does it mean that you show your works? It means that you are saved. And if you have faith, if you have saving faith, what will naturally result from that? Works. That is what he's after. If you are a believer, you must show your works. Now, think about what James is saying. If he's requiring works, he's presuming salvation. If he's saying that if you are genuinely saved, you have faith. If faith is present, you must have works. But if you have works, what are you saying about yourself? You, have, you are wise and understanding. James is quoting himself without going through the entire section that is just spoken about in chapter 2. Now, we go through this very slowly. But if you read through this um, in one setting, verse 13 is not far from verse 14 of chapter 2. In fact, our versifications make it seem like, it. oh, it's a chapter later. No, there is no chapters or there were no chapters in the original text. So this is very much still linked to the display of faith. James wants him to think about what it means to put on display your works. The verbal form here in this imperative speaks about the entire action. Let him show. There is no real timing involved. And often this, it's called the heiress tense, and often the heiress tense speaks about a, a past event, and that's an incorrect uh, misunderstanding of how the heiress tense is used. It can mean that when it relates to time, but yeah, it does not relate to time. And in fact, what, what James is saying is that this should be happening. If it's not happening, put it into works. Show your works. Get it going. There is no option in this. The wise and understanding person, the person who has faith, is the person that must show their works. Now, this is not works to salvation. This is works from salvation. Once you are saved, works must be present. 
So the, good, the conduct that James is after comes after being saved. Now, there are two qualities that James highlights that relates to showing these works. Remember, main clause, main idea, let him show his works. Well, how should I show my works, James? Well, this is how. By his good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. That is how your works must be displayed. This is not the person who merely proclaims that he has love for the Lord, but never shows a demonstration of his love for the Lord for the bride of Christ. This is not the person who merely professes that they they love the word of God, but never live in accordance with the word of God. That kind of profession has no legs on it. There's no hands to that kind of faith. That person merely makes a verbal proclamation without a depth of understanding of what God requires of him. James says, well, if you are wise and understanding, then you will show your faith. You will demonstrate that reality in how you live. What are the two works that James highlights? And I've given it to you in synopsis format. Now let's look at it. It's both ethical and personal. Firstly, let's look at the ethical element. The first quality of how to display your works, your post-salvation works, is by goodliness. There's that word. Goodliness. Good behavior. That's the ethical element in good Conduct. And you may be thinking he's making up a word. And I do that at times. You know that. If I can't find a word, I just make it up. Now, this is actually from a, an old Middle English word, goodly. I love that word, goodly. To be desirable, to be goodly by nature, to have a pleasant behavior. It is from the Germanic form, hotlichatz, or for those of you who are Afrikaans, which sounds like godly. There's a connection um, in those words. I like the word goodly because it kind of describes the word that James uses in this first clause. Now take note of um, this first phrase, the, the first prepositional phrase, by his good conduct. And I know I don't normally break the text up like this, where I take the main clause out of its place in the English translation, because it is awkward. But the way that James writes it actually makes logical sense. Let him show by his works, uh, let him show his works by his good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. I think that makes logical sense. Let him show his works, this is how. Two things. By his good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. So, the word good in the text here, is the word that I have in English translated as goodly. You don't have to write that word. You can just write good or goodness. It is similar. But it describes a fine, excellent, praiseworthy quality or behavior, almost word for word, of what goodly is. So that's why I like the When I read this, I'm thinking, I know this word. I read it a few times, probably about a, a, a month or so ago, in an old uh, grammar, it looked at the, the etymology of the word, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to use that word in the sermon. Anyway, now you have it. It's resident in your mind for forever. 
So this word modifies the kind of behavior that is in view. Good behavior or good conduct, as some of your translations um, uh, would, would say. Now, what is meant by conduct? This word actually relates to the entire scope of one's existence. It's not the normal word used for um, speaking metaphorically of life. It's normally the word walk. But James chooses this word very specifically specifically for a very specific reason. It, it relates to the ongoing, day-to-day, functional um, busyness of life. One dictionary defines it as such. It is as daily behavior, literally, quote, describing a turning around or turning back as is used figuratively, figuratively of a turning here and a turning there in the daily affairs of life. And thus refers to the entirety of one's conduct especially focusing on our daily behavior and our general deportment. I think it makes sense, right? It's the, the, the going forth and the coming back, the holistic nature of your existence. I like the illustration that I read about this word. It's as if a man leaves his home, goes from farm to farm, house to house, person to person, and returns back to his family, the place where he started. I think you get the idea. The entire existence of his life is in view. Not just his house life. Not just his work life. Not just his relational life. But every aspect of it is in view. For us, it would probably be getting up, brushing our teeth, going to work, Having lunch, going back to work, having supper, going back to work for some of you, then coming home and spending time with your family. The picture is of the cycle of life. Paul uses it in the negative with reference to our former manner of life, Ephesians uh, chapter 4.22. We have to put to death our former manner of life, a former way of living. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, he speaks of himself and he says, my former way of life as a Jew when he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. So negatively, it, re- it relates to everything that involves in your life. And so positively, it does exactly the same thing. So James, when he uses this word good conduct, he has the to- totality uh, or the holistic nature of your existence in view. What is he saying? Wisdom must so show itself up wholly and completely in every avenue of your life. Wherever you are, whatever you do, wisdom must show itself. Wisdom is not a classroom discussion amongst theologians. Wisdom is not a debate amongst, what are they called, debatees? whatever they are. Wisdom is not seen in putting on a display of excellence. What James is after is wisdom is seen in the humdrum, the groveling activities of our life. How we think about life, how we do life, and how we respond to life. That's where wisdom is on display. What we do and why we do what we do, that's when wisdom shines most. Now, it is not just conduct 
It is not just the fact that you are living, but it is good conduct. That word good, goodliness, modifies the way that you need to live. The entire existence of your life must be defined by goodness or goodliness. Now, James uses this word as an antonym to what is used previously. Look at the end of verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. That word evil is the antonym, the opposite of this word good, full of deadly poison. Do you think he still has the tongue in mind? I think so. The entire existence, your, your, your walk, your conduct, your life, must be marked by goodness. So what does it mean about your speech? We're exactly the same. You need to be defined by goodness. Wisdom shows itself up in your, con- in your conduct. It needs to permeate your existence. Let me illustrate this. What happens when somebody gives you too much change? At the top. Oh man, the Lord is good. I got changed for 500 rand and I gave him 50 rand. I'm pocketing the rest. What happens in that situation? That is an ethical situation. This is what James calls for. How do you respond to that? What is the goodness that you show in that moment? Sir, you've made a mistake. Or ma'am, you've made a mistake. My wife made me drive all the way back to Builders because the lady didn't charge her for a scissors. I mean, I, I praise her for that, but I had to drive all the way back there. What about the woman who stands on the corner of the internet? Proverbs clearly tells us, walk away. How do we make decisions? How does wisdom inform us on those ethical dilemmas that we struggle with on a daily basis? He says, goodliness should mark you. You will never forget that word. Goodness should be your conduct. That is how you should be be defined. A person who is wise and understanding shows their work of faith by means of ongoing good behavior. They know what they have to do and they do it. So firstly, wisdom is seen in good conduct. Secondly, wisdom is seen in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, I I know there's a redundancy in that statement, but that's how James um, says this. Who is wise and understanding, let him show his works by, number one, his goodness of conduct, and then number two, in the meekness of wisdom. So here we have the personal, relational element of wisdom. Wisdom. So not only is it ethical, but also relational. The person who is wise and understanding shows his works in the wisdom of gentleness. And there is understandably some challenge with how this ought to be translated. And you will find a variety of translations or senses um, of the gentleness or meekness of wisdom. And I will try to give you um, at least my understanding of how I think this this construction is put together. 
Does he mean wisdom is gentle, or does he mean that the source of gentleness is wisdom? Now, I don't know if it makes much of a difference, but if, if wisdom is gentle, then wisdom is personified, which will be in line with Old Testament literature. But is that what James is after? Is, 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 is wisdom the source of gentleness? In that case, it influences how gentleness is being de- demonstrated. So let's examine this together. Remember the main thought. He must show his good works. That's what we must do. How do we show our good works? Number one, by his good conduct. And number two, in the meekness of wisdom. And this is seen in this little preposition in, sometimes translated as with, the meekness of wisdom. The reason I take this to be through gentleness of wisdom is because this word meekness can be translated as gentleness. In fact, Jesus uses both humility and gentleness in one sentence when he describes himself. And the word that is often translated as gentleness is this word right here. James provides the means through which the action is to be performed. What is the action? To show our works. How do we show our works? In meekness of wisdom. In order for us to understand this challenge, we have to understand what gentleness is. Gentleness is the opposite of arrogance. It is the opposite of boastfulness and pride and harshness. It is mentioned as a quality of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Um, In the list of the fruit of, of the Spirit, gentleness is one of those things. So the idea here is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Jesus says of himself that I am of himself that I am gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks of the kingdom citizens, those who have been brought into the kingdom. And he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek is this word here, gentle or meekness or humble, however your Bible translated, it. it's the same word. I like what one author says. It's, he says, quote, It involves a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with fellow men. End quote. It is not just something you have. It is something you display. Gentleness is described, uh, describes the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself. It's not putting on a display of self-importance. Gentleness, and you may be thinking humility. There is a connection to it, and that's why sometimes it is translated as humility. However, when we use the word meekness or gentleness, in our society, we may think weakness. That's not what James is after. It is literally strength under control. To have the ability and the strength of a horse, but to have the tenderness of a mother chick. To have the gentleness of, I was going to say an ostrich, but they are, they are not gentle at all. Of a dove. This is not something that is put on a shelf and it's put on display to say, look, I have meekness. This is something that affects how you treat people. 
Why this word meekness? James understands that we deal with people on a regular basis. In fact, this is still in the context of the use of the tongue. And so he goes from ethics, good behavior, to personal relationships in meekness of wisdom, in gentleness. Why am I speaking about speaking to people or relational aspect? Well, what is the, the greater context here? Chapter 3, verse 1, speaking about teachers. What is the immediate antecedent context here? The use of the tongue. What does gentleness relate to most often? Dealing with people. Gentleness is not something that you, you have on inanimate uh, objects. You don't have gentleness. You don't show gentleness to your car. Uh, you should, but you don't. Because it doesn't respond back to you. Gentleness generally um, refers to how we deal with other people. In fact, Paul uses it in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 25, where he deals with those who disagree. And he says to Timothy, um, you are to correct them with gentleness. That's often how it is used, especially in Scripture. It is the kind of response that provides opportunity for reconciliation. Why? Because it is gracious, it is soft, it is not... Um, it doesn't cut the person off. It leaves an open door for, of, uh, for communication. But pride and arrogance kills communication. Pride and arrogance kills any opportunity for reconciliatory discussion. Proverbs 15.1 says, A harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft or a gentle answer turns away wrath. That is a sense that lies behind this word, meekness of wisdom. James has in mind how we are to respond to people. It must be in gentleness. So how do we understand in the meekness of wisdom, in the gentleness of wisdom? The driving force behind your gentleness ought to be wisdom. The source of your gentleness must be wisdom. What allows us to be gentle with people is the echo of wisdom in our minds. The lack of wisdom demonstrates itself in a harsh tongue, a hurtful tongue, and an arrogant tongue. James says, that is not how wise and understanding looks in the life of God's people. What this means then is that wisdom provides prudence to how we ought to deal with others, even if we disagree with them. Even if they disagree with us. One way it will show up is in our gentleness, in our meekness, in our gracious approach to God's people. Somebody asked, well, in Bible study, how, how then should we use our tongue? If James is condemning the wrong use of the tongue, how should we use our tongue? Well, James tells us, tells us exactly how. Number one, if you are wise, then you will have a conduct that will demonstrate the presence of faith. Number two, if you are wise, then you will have meekness 
with those whom you speak with. You will be gentle in how you deal with people. That's how you use your tongue. Why? Because you understand they have been created in the image or the likeness of God. That's what he says in verse 9. And so you have no inherent right to cause verbal injury to those who bear the image of God, whether believer or unbeliever. Knowledge of God's way, God's will, and God's one for your life causes you, provides the prudence, the understanding, and the wisdom for you to respond to them in gentleness and kindness. The lack of wisdom is seen in an ungodly, unruly, undisciplined life and carelessness in how we respond to people. If we do not want to hew people down or burn down forests or, 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 um, of people, then we need wisdom. But wisdom is never independent of understanding and knowledge. It's never independent of knowing who God is and understanding what he desires. John Calvin wrote, quote, True wisdom consists principally of two parts, knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, your word says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. Wisdom is far more precious than silver or any precious jewel. There is nothing that we desire that should be compared to the reception and the possession of wisdom. You say that life is in her right hand and in her left is riches and honor. You tell us that in her way is pleasantness and life is in her path. Father, I pray that these truths would hit home in our hearts. That you would burden the rebelliousness of our hearts, that we would not walk away in pride and arrogance to think that I can do better. We cannot. That's why we need you. As Calvin says, that wisdom starts with knowing who you are and knowing ourselves. Lord, we are weak. We don't always respond wisely. We don't always treat people gently. We ask you to forgive us, Lord. Pray that we would put on display our works by means of good behavior and in gentleness of wisdom. That you would be honored in our lives, in all that we do, in every aspect of our life, that you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Pray for those who do not know you as Savior. To them, they cannot pursue wisdom. For them, they cannot have wisdom. But what they need is the one who is wisdom himself, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open their eyes to see the need of a Savior who has died for them. They too can walk in a newness of life and in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray these things, depending upon you for your grace and giving thanks for your Savior's love. Amen.